Scripture reading will be from Hebrews 11, 1 through 4. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it he being dead yet speaketh. You may be seated. If you are visiting with us, hopefully you've gotten one of those visitor's packets. And if you have, if you'll pass your attendance card to the aisles at this time, I have some gentlemen who will come up and down those aisles, and they'll grab those cards for you. We'd like to have a, a record of your attendance, but also we would like to say to you that we're glad that you're here. Uh, and I'm glad to be here. I haven't been here in, in a few days. Your children uh, are interesting folks. <laughs> now, you can take that good, bad, or indifferent. <clears throat> they are very industrious when it's time to go to work, and they're very playful when it's time to not go to work, and that's all right. And they did a very good job in Eagleville uh, this week, and they knocked a lot of doors, and they invited a lot of people. Had a lot of response to come to VBS. I had opportunity to work on some things uh, at the building uh, there at Eagleville and also in the community. Um, so if any of your children came home and, said, and you said, what did you do? And they said, well, we played in the graveyard. That is a true statement. Probably not exactly true. We had the opportunity to level some headstones for some people. And so uh, we had an opportunity to... to uh, show the church in a good light there in the community. Uh, over the past two months, we've had six activities that will take us here and there and everywhere. And for most of our groups, some gone all the time, some would go when they can. Uh, if you haven't been and, and you thinking about being a part of that group, you really need to be. Uh, we've had some fun and we have enjoyed ourselves and really, the people that were missing are you. So, so come on and enjoy that, too, and we'll have a big old time and do something else. How many of you have ha had a grandmother or maybe a great-grandmother or maybe, maybe, maybe that person is you in your family? She gets out this book that's roughly the size of uh, the podium here, and that book has a certain distinctive smell about it. You know, that, that it's an old smell. And she starts at the beginning, and she begins to tell you all about your family with these old pictures that she has of people you have never seen before in your life. And maybe she traces your family back to the Civil War, or maybe even uh, to the Revolutionary War, or perhaps even further back than that. A lot of painstaking effort has gone into that particular book. And she likes to tell you that story. And if you're smart, you'll pay attention. And you'll, you'll see how far your family goes in the, the outreaching of the fingers of your family in our nation and perhaps even in the Lord's church. Let me get a... And that's what you hold right here. 
You see, within the first 39 books known as the Old Testament, you have a detailed account of one family. You have a detailed account of the, the bloodline through which Jesus the Christ will come. As a matter of fact, when you look at that book, you'll see a lot of people who are mentioned as Jewish and not so many people mentioned as Gentile. As a matter of fact, when they're mentioned as Gentile, that's never really a great thing. This book is designed so that you and I can look at the family of Jesus the Christ. So that we can see the, the intent of God to send that Messiah, that Savior, that Redeemer to us. And as we look through that, we see a book that is truthful, good, bad, or indifferent. It's truthful. It does not lie to us. It may record uh, men or even Satan telling lies in it, but that is a true record of what happened. It may recall Satan would say, thou shalt not surely die, when God said, yes, you are. As you look at this book, you see truths uh, and lessons that you and I can learn from these people who make up the family of Jesus the Christ. And just to be real honest with you, they're not all great people. How many of you have black sheep in the family? I see that giggle. Now let's ask this one. How many of you are the... No, stop. Let's don't even ask that question. As you and I look through this book, there are lessons that should just pop out at us. This morning we're going to look at lessons from well-known Jewish men and women in this Bible. Tonight we're going to look at lessons from lesser-known Jewish men or women within this Bible. Let's get started. You know, this guy Abraham, you find his name change around Genesis chapter number 12. He goes from the, family, or the uh, exalted father to the father of many nations. As a matter of fact, I learned that today. That's what his name meant, Abram to Abraham. He's mentioned throughout the Bible several times. As a matter of fact, even the Jews of Jesus' day would refer back to him. We are of our father Abraham. There's a lot of stock put in this man. He is the one by which uh, the, the Bible itself hangs. As a matter of fact, there's really only two principles on which the Bible itself hangs. First, number one is the promise found in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. And secondly, is the, the promise found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And he is part of that. We find him throughout the New Testament and throughout the Old Testament. His life to us has been seen time and time and time again. And you could probably tell me everything you needed to know or I needed to know about Abraham. Look over with, over with me, if you will, at Hebrews chapter number 11. And look at Abraham's life. As he is mentioned as the friend of God. When you and I look at Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. He went out not knowing whether he went. And so as we read through those particular chapter, that particular chapter, we get all of the account of him, and then Sarah is thrown in there with him. 
Notice, if you will, what God says about Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8 as you and I begin to look at this friend of God. He goes out where he's told to go, and he doesn't really know where that is. How many of you would like to go on a mission trip? Don't worry, we're not getting the vans gassed up and going right now. Just, well, where are we going to go? Don't, don't worry about that. How many of you still want to go? Not many of us. We want to know where we go, how long we're going to be there, how I need to dress. If you go to Eagleville, Missouri, you need to dress warmly because it's cold. There's a lot of different factors that we think that we need to have as we look at doing God's Word. Here you have Abraham who just leaves. And he's going into a place that will afterward become an inheritance for him. But right now he doesn't know where he's going, why he's going, when he's going to stop, or how he's going to get there, or... What happens within his life as he goes? It's interesting to me as I look at Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, I see a man who goes and is later told some more information after he proves himself doing what God says to do. Go, all right, where are we going? Well, I'll tell you later. Okay, well, I'm still going. Mm, that's tough. He has a mindset to leave where he is and to follow God as closely as possible. That's a tough sale. Leave where you are and follow me wherever that leads to. I don't know, but what if I need to, what about my leave where you are and follow as closely to me as you can? Well, that, that sounds good in, in theory, but what about you know, as I read through the book of Genesis, Hebrews chapter 11, as I read through James chapter 2, I never read about a time where Abraham said, yeah, but what about? Now, that, we often paint the picture that Abraham was uh, perfect. That's incorrect. He was not perfect. He was, however, faithful. Would you leave where you're supposed to be, or where you think you're supposed to be and go where you truly are supposed to be? Here's your lesson. If one person named Abraham can be the friend of God, then why can't I be? Nathan, you know what it takes to be friends? I've got to want to be a friend, and you've got to want to be a friend. If Nathan doesn't want to be my friend, I can't make him. You ever tried that? Here you have God who wants to be Abraham. Now Abraham's going to have to choose. And he chooses properly. And if Abraham can do it, brethren, we can too. We can be seen by God and those around us as the friend of God. What a great idea is found about him in James chapter 2 and verse number 21 through verse number 24 where he is called the friend of God. That he went after those things and did those things the way that God would have them done. He proved himself to be God's friend over and over and over and over again. You want to be the friend of God? This one's real easy. Do what he says to do. If I'm going to prove myself friendly to him, then I'm going to prove myself as one who is a follower 
of God. Notice this next character, David. Whew. Do you know how many sermons over how many years have been preached about David, whether he be a boy in the field uh, working with those sheep, whether he be a uh, giant slayer, whether he be a uh, one who is playing harp in Saul's court, whether he be the one who's being anointed as king. Do you know how many sermons have been preached about David? And they're all good. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter number 17. David, the one as the giant slayer. And I think this particular lesson, as we look at David, resonates through David's entire life. It wasn't, it wasn't a moment of courage that David had while he was on that field. It was a moment that his courage peaked out while he was on that field. 1 Samuel 17, David's in charge of taking to his brothers food. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you want to have an army that fights well, uh, you need to feed them. And so it was the responsibility of the family to bring some food there. And so he's bringing food to his brothers, and he sees this man down in the valley. And as common as it is, there's generally one soldier per side, and whoever wins gets to be the victor. Whoever loses gets to be the slave. Well, that doesn't sound great, does it? To which, after all of the, the cursings and, and screaming and yelling and defying God that happens within that valley, after all of those things are said and done, David raises an interesting question when he says, is there not a cause for someone to go down there and fight this guy? Is there not a cause? He's defying not only the army of God, he's defying God himself. Is there not a cause at all for someone to go down there? But everybody up on the hill was chicken. Everybody was scared. He's nine feet, nine feet, six inches. Listen, he is, he's a hand width or a little less short of a basketball goal. You want to go down there and fight him? Be my guest. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what they say to him. Hey, you need to go on back home because all you're doing is looking for a fight. You want to go down there and fight him? Go ahead. And so David does. He goes down there and he, he, he battles and he wins. Not only does he knock him out or down with that stone, possibly killing him, and we know he's dead when he cuts his head off. If you're standing on somebody's chest and you cut their head off, they're dead. That's, that's my professional medical opinion for what that's worth. Now, in that entire chapter, David sees the need to defend God and his people. That's the lesson. He sees a need to defend God and his people. Sometimes we don't see that need as clearly as, as we should. Sometimes we're scared of giants. And sometimes those giants are nothing but full of hot air. And the presentation is so good that we're scared of it. Not the case with David. This is a trick question, a 
put that right out there at the beginning. Who won that battle? Israel? David? God. God won that battle. As a matter of fact, before the battle starts, as David is charging this giant, he gives glory to God for the victory. God's going to win that battle. We need to defend God just as much as he would defend us. We live in a world that would tend to tell us there are different paths to the same place. Well, it's not true. There are a lot of different paths to one place. You remember your memory verse last week? Wide is the gate. A lot of different paths to that place. But who wants to be rewarded with, with that? You listen to the words of Jesus who would say in John chapter 14, in verse number 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father. Now he's going to narrow that path down, but by me. There's not 450,000 ways to God. There's one way, and there has always been one way. Well, you look at other attacks on the church, you'll see things about... Uh, uh, the way preaching is or who should do those preaching or how we should sing or all of those things are, de- are defensible by us, but we're going to have to pick up the sword and the shield and go get it. See, David was not afraid of those things. David was not afraid to defend God, knowing that God would completely protect him. What happens if in our country uh, the entirety of the country turns against New Testament Christianity and says, if anyone preaches or gathers together and, uh, and begins to worship in this way, then you're going to be killed. What happens? I guess we don't show up. We just uh, worship at our houses together, right? You know, I'm a straight betwixt the two, he would write. Whether to go on and be with the Lord, which is much more beneficial for me, or to stay here and work with the church, which is much more beneficial for you. Do you, do you really suppose Paul wanted to be here more than he wanted to be in heaven? <laughs> Probably not. It's time we defend God. It's time we become, become his friend. Look at this uh, well-known Jewish man, Nehemiah, the great wall builder. Nehemiah, you're going to be sent back with uh, one of the rulers of Israel named Zerubbabel, and you're going to be sent back with Ezra. Ezra's going to establish the uh, religious side. Zerubbabel's going to establish kind of the, the governmental side. And I want you, Naaman, or Nehemiah rather, I want you to build a wall. Here's what I don't know about Nehemiah that I'm going to have to assume He has had some kind of wall-building experience, maybe. I say that with a maybe because I look at Noah, know that he ever built a boat before that first one. Nehemiah, I want you to go back and build a wall. I want you to encircle Jerusalem with a wall. Why? Because they're afraid God can't protect them? No. Really, nobody wants to be exposed to uh, marauders and wild animals through the night. You know, it's much easier to go to bed and sleep all night than it is have to wake up every 15 or 20 minutes because of fear, isn't it? Build a wall around that city. 
Let's have it completely enclosed the way God wants it to be. And so that's what they do. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of guys there by the name of Sanballat and Tobiah. And they don't really like the fact that Nehemiah is coming up building this wall. As a matter of fact, they send word to him about chapter 2 or 3 and invite him out to the plain of Ono. Remember those old Western movies where somebody gets uh, cheated on a, on a deal as they're playing poker and eventually somebody's chair gets slid back and say, why don't we take this outside? You know what's going to happen next, right? In the book of Nehemiah, why don't we take this outside is, why don't you meet us down here in the plain of Ono? Because if you come down here, we're going to whoop the fire out of you, and you're not going to go back and build a wall. To which Nehemiah responds, oh no, I'm not going to that plain. I'm going to stay here and build a wall. And so he does. And at every turn of every shovel and at every uh, uh, hit of every hammer that they have, the enemy is constantly uh, attacking them so that they find themselves, one man putting stones together, another man waiting for the fight with a sword in his hand. And then when the man building the wall gets tired, they switch places. It'll be Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 that will tell us that the folks who were building that wall built that wall in 52 days. Now, here's the qualifier. Because they had a mind to work. How about that? Even with the enemies threatening, even with the enemies pressing down on them, even with the ridicule you hear to where they say, even a fox could tear down that wall. With all of those things going on, God's will still has to be completed. It's still the job of Nehemiah and those men there to build that wall. Now, are they going to do it? Well, as you and I read through the book of Nehemiah, they do. You ready for this lesson? Let me say this in my best Alabama. Are you ready? <clears throat> The enemy ain't going away. He's not going to stop. He's always going to be there. So you're going to work or not? You didn't think that was in there, did you? I'm either going to choose to do something or I'm going to choose to do nothing and I'll make the choice. It'll be Nehemiah who was called the great wall builder because even while that enemy was there, even while that enemy was pressing down on him, he said this work still has to be done. And then there's the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59. That great prophet. That book of Isaiah is known as the Little Bible. 66 chapters. The first 39 of them deal with the coming of the Messiah. The second uh, 27 of them deal with what will happen when he's here. Almost identical to the Bible you hold in your very hands. It'd be in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, where Isaiah would write this. God's not so far away that he can't hear you. His shoulder's not so small that he cannot bear your burden. Verse 2, but your sin, my sin, has separated me from God. It's not God who has moved. It rather is 
you after you follow after your own sinful desires. There's an old preacher story uh, that's told about a young couple who began dating and they eventually got married, lived together 30, 40, 50 years, however long you want them to live together. And as they started dating, they, were, they uh, dated in a pickup truck and they would sit right beside each other. And over the years, uh, you know, space was made in between there. And the lady looked over at her husband one day and said to her, uh, why don't we sit as close as we used to? To which he replied, I never moved. And that would be God who said, I never moved. You see, it's not the fact that, that God has changed and, and that's what causes the, the chasm between us. It's not that God has is, is changed his rules and that, that he expects something different that has caused the, the space between us. But I have. And if I'm going to be real honest about it, I've caused the space because I'm selfish. You know what I like to do? Whatever I want to do. How about you? Mm -hmm. How many of you like to be told what to do? No. Anybody? How many of you are told what you have to do? Yeah. But we don't, we don't like that as much. We don't want to be told like that. But it is God's will, it is God's law that keeps me where I'm supposed to be. And I often find myself kicking against that because I don't want to be there. It's the sin of a nation that separated Israel and God. And I myself can be separated from God by ungodly choices. Notice next. Solomon. This will be our last one for today. Solomon. As you and I looked last week or last time I was here and preached. I'm not sure how many weeks ago that was. Maybe two weeks. We looked at the book of Ecclesiastes in its whole. And we stopped and we, we looked at verses 11 or chapter 11, 9 through chapter 12. And we got an idea of, of what God would expect. Now, I want you to take a moment and try to remember from uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse number 8. Okay? That book before chapter 11, verse number 9, where Solomon tries everything, every way, he tries to fulfill himself with pleasure, with women, with gardens, with buildings, with anything else he can find within his life. And he says repeatedly through the book this phrase, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, I don't know when the last time 
aside from preaching in the, the book of Ecclesiastes, when the last time I used the word vanity in a, in a regular sentence is. Let's change our, our wording a little bit so we can understand it a little better. Uselessness to the nth degree. Everything within life is useless. That's a sad fellow right there. He must have a bad life. He must, he must have terrible things going on. He must never get to make any kind of decisions. He must be just as poor as he possibly can be. Except he's the king of the richest nation in the world and the richest man to have ever lived. There's a side note to a lesson right here. And maybe the side note is this. Wealth ain't all you think it is. But here he says, I've tried everything, every way, every possible situation I could put myself in that, that I thought would, would help me, that I thought would, would please me. And here's what I found out. Verse 13 and 14, the last two verses of the entirety of that book. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. If you read the King James Version, you'll read the whole duty of man. And what you'll see there is the word duty in italics. Which will let us know that the translators supplied that so that we could uh, understand the, the meaning a little, a little more clearly, a little more in depth. I like it without it. For this is the whole of man. You know that hole he was trying to fix? That hole he was trying to plug? <laughs> right here it is. You want to know what life's about? Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's it. Hopefully the book of Ecclesiastes will teach us this fact. We are quickly racing. We are in a dead sprint to eternity. We are not inching ever closer. We are in a dead sprint to one day be face to face with the Creator. What are you going to say? That is, that is a, an appointment you will keep. I had to change some, some appointments this week, as a matter of fact. As I was out knocking on a door, I had a phone call. Took that phone call. They said, Mr. Hayes, are you coming to think it was the dentist. I said, I'm not coming this week unless y'all got a branch in Eagleville. They said, where's that? I said, exactly. If we don't learn the lessons of I am going to face God one day, that appointment will shock us. Oh, I have to meet him today? You absolutely do. I wasn't ready. Well, Ladies and gentlemen, get ready because that appointment is coming. 
This time that we have on this side of eternity is so that we can be prepared to stand face to face with our God. And it not be a shock. And it not be intimidating. And it not be uh, surprising. And it not be scary. But rather we can stand face to face with Him and look at Him and take in His magnificence. His power because of the relationship that we have. Because I'm standing face to face with my Father. Let's suppose for a moment you stood face to face with Him today. Would you stand face-to-face with your father or with the judge? Because there's a whole lot of difference. I might be fearful if I stood in front of the judge, but if my father is the judge, then I'm not. How you stand before him is based exactly on how you respond to the next couple of questions. Right now, within your hand, is your eternity. You need to make a decision. Will you follow him? Have you ever put on Christ in baptism? If the answer is no, following him is as easy as hearing what he has to say and believing those things, John 8 and verse 24. It's just as easy as repenting of your sin, confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, and being baptized in water thereby being adopted into the family of God himself. And you stand before your Father. If you've not done that, you need to. Now, your second question. If you have done that, and you've made that promise to the Father, have you been faithful to keep that promise? If not, let me encourage you to stand up and dust the dirt from the pig pen off of you. Let me encourage you to come back home to the God of heaven who misses you, to his church that misses you. Let me encourage you to do that right now while we stand and sing.